At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Our God and King, we call this Friday good because it was horrible for Jesus. We call it good because for the joy said before you, Jesus, you endured the cross. The joy of your bride, the church global, gathered and saved. We call it good because in your body on the cross, you destroyed the curse of sin. We are free. We are whole. We are healed. We are forgiven. Praise, all praise, all hail our God and King. Sanctify this hour to us, Lord. Your word is truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. The word of the Lord. In the last few weeks, during our study on the Olivet Discourse, we said that there's only one question that matters when our lives come to an end. When everything is said and done about your life, when you've gained, when you've lost, when when your strength is gone, there's only one question that matters. Does Jesus know you? The answer is yes, nothing else matters. If the answer is no, nothing else matters. And for Jesus to know you, you must know him. Now, it's possible for someone to think that they know Jesus, but really they don't. Which means that Jesus does not know them either. This is why Paul tells us to examine ourselves continually to see if we are in the faith. But even though the fact remains that some people might be deceived about this, the reality is that for Jesus to know us, we must know him. And knowing him remains the most enigmatic, the most difficult the most rewarding, the thing that requires the most and least effort all at once, which is why all fruitful study of Scripture must, in the final analysis, be a study that increases our amazement and our understanding and our self-abasement and our devotion to Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we come to meditate on His death from the Gospel of Matthew, there are a number of things that Matthew must show. On the one hand, Jesus predicted His death three times. The third time he said this to his followers in Matthew 20. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So now as Matthew narrates the event, he shows us that this is exactly what happened. But on the other hand, Matthew still must show from a human perspective, why Jesus was killed, how it happened, the miscarriage of justice, the complicity of all those involved. So how does he do that? How does he show us that God's plan is being fulfilled just as God intended and at the same time show us the evil intentions and actions of those who carried it out? Listen to how Luke puts it in Acts 4. This is a prayer. The disciples here are praying to God and they say, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, 
that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So in Jerusalem, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel gathered together to do whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. So who's doing the judicial sentencing and killing of the Son of God? Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews. But whose plan is it? God's. So how does Matthew show precisely that? That the evil intentions and actions of the people are indeed carrying out God's plan. And the answer is through irony. Irony. Irony refers to the contrast between expectation and reality. There are different kinds of literary irony. There's a verbal, situational, dramatic, and the Biblical writers, the gospel writers, make use of irony quite a bit, but it becomes specially pronounced as they get to the narration of the death of Jesus Christ. One of the most common examples of irony, of dramatic irony, is the end of the play Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, when Juliet uh, takes a potion that makes her appear dead, even though she's just sleeping because she wants to avoid her uh, arranged marriage to Paris because she loves Romeo. The problem is that when Romeo gets there and he sees her in this death-like state, he thinks she's dead, and so he can't bear it, and so he kills himself. But then when Juliet wakes up and sees him dead, she kills herself. Now, I know we all have questions about what these two teenagers are doing with all these potions and poison and daggers. They should stop pining after love and go get jobs at Starbucks or something. This is way too much. But here's why it's dramatic irony. In dramatic irony, the audience knows something the characters do not. Okay, so with the play of Romeo and Juliet, we know the whole time that Juliet is not dead. She's just sleeping. But Romeo doesn't know that. And so as the whole drama unfolds, we're going, no, don't do this. You see, there's what reality looks like for Romeo, which is woefully mistaken, and what reality looks to the audience who know the truth. Well, Matthew has prepared us throughout his gospel so that when we get to the narration of the death of Jesus, we know who he is. But Pilate does not. The soldiers do not. The crowd does not. They're doing and saying all these things fully convinced of the rightness of their actions, but they're wrong. And they're wrong because they're wrong about one thing, the identity of Jesus Christ. And yet, as they are doing and carrying out their evil actions and plans, they're bringing about what God had predestined to take place. Listen to me, in your life, there is one thing you do not want to get wrong, the identity of Jesus. And so we're going to look at Pilate, the soldiers, and the crowd and see how they got it wrong. First, the governor. Is Jesus guilty or innocent? Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, 
Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ. They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The Roman governor Pontius Pilate is amazed because Jesus is not defending himself. Jesus is standing before him on a charge of blasphemy by the Jews. Blasphemy was a high crime for the Jews. It was the act of applying to yourself what only and rightly belonged to God. And so they think that Jesus is blasphemous because he claims to be God's Messiah. God's promised deliverer for Israel, doing the things that only God could do, like forgiving sins. It never occurred to them for a second that he might be the Messiah because he didn't fit their mold, which included political power to overthrow Rome. The problem was that the Jews did not have jurisdiction to enact a capital punishment. Only Rome could do that. But Rome did not care one bit about intra-Jewish issues and debates. So the charge that the Jews bring to Pilate against Jesus is that he claims to be the king of the Jews. And that charge would be troublesome to Pilate because there was no king but Caesar. Now, as Jesus stands before Pilate, Pilate becomes more and more restless. Jesus is the one on trial, but Pilate is the one that gets more restless. Jesus does not defend himself, and even though the Jews are so insistent on their charges, Pilate wants to release him. And so he gives them this choice, Barabbas or Jesus, which to us, the choice is obvious, but not to them. Barabbas was a freedom fighter, an insurrectionist. He fought for Israel's freedom from under Rome's thumb. Jesus, on the other hand, was this Messiah, or someone who claimed to be the Messiah, but with no power. He was a pretender, as far as they were concerned. Besides that, the the Jews are insisting, they're inciting the crowd to ask for Barabbas. While this is happening, Pilate's wife sends him a word that he should have nothing to do with that righteous man because she had suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. And so Pilate comes back out to the crowd and asks them again, which one do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? They say, Barabbas. He says, what what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. And then he says, why? What evil has he done? 
but they keep shouting all the louder, let him be crucified. Here's where the irony is. Powerful Pilate is really powerless. He's convinced that Jesus is innocent, and yet he delivers him. He hands him over to be crucified. He's powerless. He gets weaker as the, as the event, as the trial goes on. He's powerless before the Jewish leaders and crowds and their potential complaints to his Roman superiors. He's powerless before the Roman expectations that he keep order, that he keep peace. And above all, he's powerless before God's hand and plan. So is Jesus guilty? Or is he innocent? Then we have the soldiers. Is Jesus a criminal or a king? Jesus gets no justice from the, from the highest Jewish court. He gets no justice from the highest court of the land through the Roman governor. And now his physical tor torture begins. It starts in verse 26 with the flogging, which was a severe beating that they, where they employed a multi-lash whip that would have embedded uh, pieces of bone or metal that basically flayed his skin open. The soldiers come and surround Jesus and they do two things. They beat him and mock him. But the event drips with irony because the reason for their mockery is the claim that he's sentenced for being the king of the Jews. But they think he's a pretend king. So they treat him as such. Look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Okay, think of the splendor that belongs to Jesus alone. For all the ages, all power and praise and glory and honor and wisdom are ascribed to him from everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and everything in them. But here he's being stripped of all his clothes all his dignity. A battalion of about 600 soldiers surround him. Psalm 22, much of which is fulfilled during the passion of Jesus Christ, describes those who array themselves against God's anointed, God's servant, by saying, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls surround me. They open wide their mouth at me like a ravening and roaring lion. This is what's happening to him. This is how it feels to him. Soldiers take off his clothes and put this scarlet robe on him, signifying royalty. They put thorns on his head or a crown. Can you see them puncturing his skin? Put a reed in his right hand as a scepter, then they kneel and say, Hail, King of the Jews. Of course, they don't believe a word of it. But in heaven, myriads upon myriads of angels agree with their words. Hail to the King. And they bow. Do you see the contrast? The soldiers on earth are preparing a cross. In heaven, a throne. 
The soldiers spit on him. I wonder how many, how much. They take the reed and strike him with it on the head again and again. Then they strip him of the scarlet robe and put back his own clothes. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion. This is what Jesus is going through. For us. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. So they take him to be crucified. They offer him wine that's been made bitter with gall, so there's no relief there. Then they crucify him. And over his head, they place a sign that says, that reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The irony of this is that he is the king of the Jews. Israel had never had a greater king. They had a rotten history with kings. The soldiers put their best energy into their mockery of Jesus but in the end God is the one mocking them Psalm 2 which is all about the coronation of God's king says about those who gather against God's anointed he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision so is Jesus a pretender or God's true king Well, up until this point, Jesus has said very little and done almost nothing. Everything has been said against him and done to him by others. The Gentiles and the Jews have tried their best against God's king. Well, now the creation and the cross speak. Look at verse uh, verse 45. But actually, before we go there, look at verse 39. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So now we get to the onlookers, to those who, uh, and they have these three statements for him or against him. In verse 40, they say, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The irony here is that the cross is the place where the temple, the old temple, will be destroyed and replaced. The irony is that if he saved himself, no one else would be saved. There would be no meeting place with God for the peoples of the world. The irony is that because he is the Son of God, he won't come down from the cross. You see, they don't know him, so they're getting it all wrong. 
The crowd is getting it wrong. And the question before them is, is Jesus crazy or is he the Christ? Then we get to their next statement in verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Again, the irony here is that Jesus saves others precisely because he won't save himself. It's not that he can't. He won't. The issue here is not a lack of ability. The issue is an overabundance of love. He won't come down from the cross. For all the predictions and the prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures about the sufferings of God's anointed, Israel does not want her king on a cross. They want him in Caesar's palace. And we want the same. They say, if you would come down from the cross, we would believe you. And then their next statement is in verse 43. They say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Again, the irony here is that God does desire him. Because he indeed trusts God. But unlike Israel's leaders and unlike us, Jesus' trust in God is not based on God doing what Jesus wants. It's based on God being who God is. But you see, what we see here is that the onlookers treat Jesus' statements like he's demented, like he's crazy, like he's a fool. And they're big statements. They're big claims. Look at what they're saying that he said, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. That he's the king of Israel, that he's the son of God. And what they think he should do to prove those statements is come down from the cross which is ironic because he does one better than come down from the cross while he's still alive. He comes out of the grave in full power on Easter Sunday after being dead. After his body should have been decomposing, his body should have stunk. It's nothing but splendor, 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 but that's Easter. You see, they think he's a fool when in reality they are their fools. And so is Jesus crazy or is he the Christ? And so after all of this mockery, all of this reviling, everything that's been said and done to Jesus, now the creation and the cross speak in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, 
truly this was the son of God. So look at all that takes place when Jesus is on the cross. At noonday, when the sun should be brightest, darkness covers the land for three hours. When Jesus gives up his spirit, the curtain of the temple, who was about 60 feet tall, was torn in two. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, and many righteous people who had died before came out and made appearances after his resurrection. Nothing puts human pride in its place like nature, like creation, reaching up from beyond its usual confines and upending all our best efforts. COVID is just one small example of that fact. If you want to see panic in the human eye, look to pandemics and tsunamis and earthquakes and wildfires. You see, Pilate, the soldiers, and the crowd got it wrong. They got it wrong. They're not confused as to the claims Jesus made. That much is clear. They're crucifying him for the right claims. It's just that they're wrong. Because they're standing before Jesus and the result of standing before him for them as for us should be amazement and understanding and self-abasement and total devotion. But instead they hated him. They hated the light that stood before them. They hated the truth that could have ended their oppression. They hated the love that could have saved them. So they get it wrong. But while Jesus is on the cross and the earth is shaking and darkness comes over the land, some of the soldiers make an amazing confession. In verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. They realize he's not a pretender, he's not a criminal, he's not someone crazy. He's the son of God. On that hill, when the earth is shaking and the light is failing, these trained soldiers, Roman soldiers, who had seen countless crucifixions, who had seen countless criminals, finally bow under the power of the mightiest empire of the day. Make this confession that goes against all the other statements that have been said about Jesus. When Jesus has been mocked and stripped and silenced and beaten and nailed to these two planks of wood, these soldiers in awe say, truly, this was the Son of God. The cross reveals Jesus as the Son of God. Their statement Runs counter to all the other statements that have been made about him. How can, be he, how can he be the son of God when he couldn't save himself? When he couldn't come down from the cross? When he couldn't destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? How can he be the king of Israel? When he doesn't have a palace but only a cross. He doesn't have any gold but only a crown of thorns. And you see, here's where we have the greatest irony of this world. God's power is made perfect in weakness for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us to us who are being saved it is the power of God we can see that Pilate got it wrong but he can't we can see that the soldiers got it wrong but they couldn't 
We can see that the crowd, the onlookers got it wrong, but they couldn't. We can see that they're perpetrating the greatest evil ever done in human history, the unjust killing of the Son of God. But we can also see that God's plan, that God's plan that he had predestined for the death of his Son is taking place so that the salvation of the world may happen. What about your life? If your life were written for others to read, what could they see that you can't? Can you see that your thirst for approval from people is filling you with turmoil and envy because your heart has not accepted that Jesus died completely rejected? Can you see that your obsession with money and the things that money can buy is wrecking your life and your relationships because your heart has not grasped that Jesus died in abject poverty and he did it for you? Can't you see that your sexual drive is too important and it's defiling you because your heart has not tasted that Jesus is far more fulfilling and he died to make you holy and pure? Can't you see that life doesn't work when we do the things we think should make life work? We go, we seek love, but find heartbreak instead. We lament injustice, but claim our own innocence. We cry because children are starving, but throw away so much food so easily. We bemoan sexual misconduct in the workplace, but watch it freely in our homes. Do you see? The only solution to the irony of life, your life, my life, is that we embrace the irony of the cross. It's the only way that your life will ever work. We must embrace the irony of the cross. That as we see this chapter unfold, and the miscarriage of justice, and the culpability of all those involved, and the torture that comes against Jesus, and finally his death. As we watch all of this, we say, no! No, this is tragic. He's done nothing wrong and everything right. But we're also forced to say, yes, he must do it, because I've done everything wrong. Whenever we embrace a version of life, Apart from the cross, life won't work. It won't work. Why do you think that so many rich people are so unhappy? So many beautiful people are so insecure. So many people with great knowledge are so unfulfilled. Why? Because apart from the cross, our lives and the irony of our lives and the confusion of our lives, it doesn't work. We must embrace, for life to ever make sense, we must embrace the irony of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why would the only, holy, innocent Son of God be forsaken by God? The answer is the love of God for us. The love of God for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see? God 
so loved us. He so loved the world that he gave his son for us. Why should Jesus be forsaken on the cross? The answer is the love of Jesus for us. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. It's his love for us. You see, on the cross, our weakness meets God's strength and our folly meets God's wisdom. It only happens on the cross. If you try, listen to me, if you try to become wise and strong by any other means, any other solution, any other hope, any other joy, then you will unwittingly become weaker like Pilate, a mockery like the soldiers, and a fool like the crowd looking on. Don't get wrong the identity of Jesus. Tonight, I invite you to resolve as if for the first time, perhaps for the first time, that in the cross of Jesus Christ, you find life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we tremble. We tremble because the things we are speaking of are precious holy. Father, we still ourselves to remember to enter into the death of our Savior for us. And to know that our lives make no sense apart from the irony of the cross. Like Pilate, we ask, why? What evil has he done? But unlike he, we know we are not innocent of this man's blood. His blood is on us. Not in judgment, but as salvation. And we thank you for it, God. Like the crowds, we say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. But unlike they, we know it was not weakness, but perfect love that kept you there on the cross. Jesus exhausting the penalty of our sin. And for that, we thank you. Like the soldiers, we say, Hail, King of the Jews. But unlike they, we ascribe all honor and glory and power and wisdom and might to you, O King of the world. All hail, King Jesus. Father, thank you for this Friday that is good to us. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would resolve that in the cross of Jesus Christ, we find life and only in the cross. And I pray for those who perhaps have never understood Jesus. They've gotten him wrong all this time. Father, I pray for them. I pray that they would bow before the king I pray they would surrender to him 
I pray that you would be opening their hearts like those tombs broke open. And I pray, Father, that Christ would give them life. We love you. We worship you. We trust you. And it's in Jesus' name, holy, precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.